Well, Redeemer, man, God is so good to us. And continuing with that theme of thanking the Lord for his kindness, we're going to look at Luke chapter 17. So your bulletin say 18. That's a typo. That's my fault. I sent 18, 11 through 19, and Mary did what I said. And then Andre caught it. He sent me a text yesterday. He said, Pastor, is it really 18 or is it 17? So uh, it's actually Luke 17, 11 through 19. It's a sweet passage. Uh, I love it because Jesus is going to enable us to learn uh, thankfulness from an unlikely person. So let's read God's word. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing somewhere between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When Jesus saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you that uh, you teach us. You call us to be a thankful people. And then you give us passages like the one before us this morning that show us the type of gratitude you're after. It is of a different sort. It is alike and yet so many ways unlike the thanks that generally come your way. There's a depth and a texture to it, Lord. Um, And this is your desire to make us people who render to you the type of thanksgiving that you are worthy of. And so, Father, in advance, uh, forgive us for the ways that we love you uh, like the nine do so often. We receive your goodnesses and we go on with life And we don't see what they point to. We don't see what they culminate in. We don't see that uh, you're after something so much deeper. And so help us by your spirit and your word to be those who are marked by radical thanksgiving. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, at some point in life, you may experience what I would like to call a learning paradox. And it happens when you gain knowledge or understanding from a very unlikely source. This happens to me uh, all the time, and I was a witness of it a few weeks ago. So a few weeks ago, our own Miss Eva Jones had a gala, and my wife and I went, and some of you were also there. And uh, at the gala, uh, a former student of ours at Jackson State, her name is Lisa Bryant. She was uh, in RUF when we were there. She also ran track for the university. And I I talked to Lisa this week, and so she gave me permission to share her story, right? Well, she got up at the gala, and she did a spoken word piece. And this is Lisa. She's not little Lisa who used to run track. She is like Dr. Lisa Bryant now. She's assistant professor of physical therapy at UMMC in their doctor of physical therapy program. This Lisa is now the only African-American certified by the Pediatric Physical Therapy Board in the state of Mississippi. She's a big deal. And she's brilliant. And Lisa began to talk about her journey with postpartum depression. And how she couldn't shake it after her last child. And the darkness would not lift. And there were numerous things that she did and numerous people she sought out for help. And she found help in an unlikely place. It was in the very children who caused her postpartum depression. It was through them and their smiles and their resiliency and their prayers and their mama, we love yous, that the Lord 
ministered to her. He used her children. And this is all over the Bible. You see these learning paradoxes. In fact, if you look at Luke 18, you don't have to, to go there, but just kind of you please go there after this. This section that we're in in Luke is full of learning paradoxes. Think about it. In Luke 18, Jesus is going to teach us about prayer. He's going to teach us about justification by faith alone and Christ alone. He's going to teach us about how we enter into the kingdom of God. Now, if we were there with Jesus, we'd be betting that if Jesus is going to teach us about how to pray, about justification, about entrance into the kingdom of God, then, then he's going to go to a scribe, a rabbi, religious leaders. But that's not who Jesus goes to. He says, when you want to learn about prayer, he says, here, here's a parable about a woman who's a widow who is persistent in her prayer. You think he's going to give you a Pharisee to teach you how to pray. And Jesus says, come here, you old woman. Teach these folks how to pray, pray, right? You think he's going to teach you about justification from a religious leader. And you know what Jesus does? He gives you a parable about a tax collector. That tax collector who has very few words, who beats his chest and says, Lord, have mercy on, on me. I'm unworthy. Jesus says, that's who left and went justified. Not the Pharisee who praises God because he's not like other people. When Jesus wants to teach about the kingdom of God, you think he's going to bring a scribe who knows the Bible, who can do a search around all the times kingdom of God is used and then exegete all of that and say, hey, let the scribe teach you about the kingdom of, of God. And what does Jesus do? He says, come here, little child. He said, unless you all big disciples become like these little children, you ain't never entering the kingdom. Do you see what Jesus is doing in Luke 18? It's the learning paradox. He's flipping our world upside down. And guess what? When he wants to teach us about radical thanksgiving, he puts somebody in front of you that the Jews would have never thought they could learn from. Now, why are we talking about thanksgiving? We're talking about Thanksgiving because on the one hand, this is an American holiday. In a couple days, some of you are going to be off work. My kids are out all next week. The world will slow down for a day and then you get Black Friday and we're back into the ruckus, right? But long before America was founded, long before it was an American holiday, Israel had holy days that were set apart by Yahweh to move them to be a thankful people. They had feasts that were to show gratitude unto the Lord. There is actually a thanksgiving offering in Leviticus 16. In other words, what God was doing on their calendar and through their feasts, it was for their formation to make them a thankful people. Secondarily, we're talking about thanksgiving because over 170 times in the Bible, you see commands to give thanks, or you see people calling days of thanks like David, or you see people responding in radical gratitude for the great things that God has done. From Leviticus to Revelation, there are 56 times in the Psalms where we have Psalms that are dedicated to helping us be thankful people. That the Bible ends in Revelation with elders and these creatures, these angelic beings and the saints of God around the throne of God, giving thanks unto God for the great things that he has done. But we're also doing this because to not give thanks is the type of sin that cosigns people to hell. Romans chapter one says, for the wrath of God is revealed against humanity, right? Against all ungodliness and all the unrighteousness of men and women who by their unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. For although we knew God, we did not honor him or give him thanks. You hear that? 
Therefore, God gives them up. He gives them over. And so people will be in hell apart from God. And one reason they're there is because they never bowed the knee. They never opened their mouths to give God the thanks that he is after. And that doesn't mean they didn't say, Lord, thank you for bread. That don't mean they didn't do that. It means they never got to the point where their hearts were bent towards the Lord in the gratitude that he is after. And so therefore, passages like this matter because what God is doing, he's helping us to become the type of thankful people that he is after. And that's what we're going to look at. So this morning, I got three points, and here's the first point. And I'm using this, this plant metaphor to kind of help us get there, and, and I'll kind of get to it at the end. But notice this, that gratitude is planted in the soil of our neediness. Gratitude is planted in the soil of our neediness. Now, our passage this morning begins with a ge uh, geography lesson. So notice what it says. It says, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And then he entered a village and at this village, which is unnamed, he's met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. Now this passage occurs in what we call, theologians call the travel narrative in Luke. So in Luke, I think it's chapter nine, but from Luke chapter nine, all the way to the end, Jesus is on this journey. He's on this journey, eventually, that's going to lead him to Jerusalem to be crucified. And so when you read Luke uh, 17, and we're hearing that Jesus is somewhere up north between Galilee and Samaria, headed for Jerusalem, you have to read into this text, and he will never, ever leave out of Jerusalem alive, that he's going to Jerusalem to die. Now, where is he, Greg? So the text says that Jesus, right? So here is Jerusalem right down here. Y'all see that? And up here is Galilee and all in between is Samaria. And so Jesus is somewhere up here in this rural part of land Somewhere in between Samaria, Galilee, he may be on this side in Samaria, but not down here near the center, but he's making his way down here never to return. All right. Y'all with me? Now, notice what it text says. It does not say that he's in a city. It says he's in a village. And that's important. You see, in Matthew chapter nine, Matthew says Jesus went throughout all the cities and the Greek word there is polis. And the villages, the Greek word there is kome. I promise y'all, I'm not just trying to like, this is Greek. I'm telling you that there are two different words and they mean two different things. A city is a fortified place. Usually there's a wall and there's population density and a lot of people and there's a name, right? On the other hand, a village, it's the opposite. It's unfortified. There may be kind of local tribal names. It's sparse. It's rural, right? So where do you think Jesus is when this happens? He's not in a city. He's in a village. And then notice when he comes to this village, 10 lepers come to him. Now that's important because if you were a leper in Jesus's day, you couldn't live in the city. You had to go live outside the camp as Leviticus says. And so by the time you have a camp that turns into a city where Jesus is now, you can't have leprosy and live in the city. You have to go out to this rural sparse parts to live. And so what we think Jesus has stumbled upon is a leper colony. He ain't approached by one leper. It's 10 of them who've been living outside of a city. Now, why is this important? Because leprosy was a skin disease that was awful. Your flesh rotted away. And that was painful. But it could also uh, have its course and you could feel no pain. And so that lepers could touch something on fire 
and be burning up and not know they're burning. Right. Now, if you had leprosy, let's suppose you woke up one day and you saw a sore on your arm and you looked at it. Oh, it's just a sore. I fail. Right. A couple days later, you looked. Oh, it, it, he ain't healing. Right. And then you saw that. OK, now it's pussing. And now the skin where the sore resides uh, is, is the, the, the wound is beneath it. And the hair where the sore is, is now discolored. And you would have to literally go from there and go show yourself to a priest. And the priest would not just kind of give you, oh, this is what I think it is. No, you know what he's going to do? He's going to pull out Leviticus 13 and Leviticus 14. And he's going to do a checklist. Is it pussing out? Yes. Is it beneath the surface of the skin? Yes. Is the hair discolored? Yes. And what he would do is pronounce you unclean. And guess what? You couldn't go back home and tell your wife goodbye. You couldn't go and kiss your kids goodbye. From the moment the priest made the pronouncement and the declaration that you were unclean, guess what? You could not shave. You could not cut your hair. You could not change your clothing. And everywhere you went, you had to put your hand literally over your mouth and yell unclean, unclean, unclean as you exited the city. And suppose you wake up one day and you think this wound is healed. You can't just run back into the camp and say, baby, I'm home. No, it don't work like that. You got to go to the edge of the city and get somebody to go get a priest. And as you're going to the city, unclean, unclean, unclean. And when the priest came out, he's bringing his Bible with him. And he's saying, oh, is the hair turning its right color? Check. Is the wound now only on the flesh? Check. And then once he, he would not even pronounce you unclean when he saw that. He would offer a sacrifice. You would bathe. You would cut your hair. And then you could go to your house. But guess what? You couldn't move in yet. You had to sleep outside for seven more days. And then you had to go back to him one more time, still yelling unclean because he ain't told you you clean yet. And he would look one more time. Is the hair back its original color? Is it not no longer bleeding? And then he would pronounce you clean. And then he would offer another sacrifice. And then you would shave your head one more time. And then you could go back into the fellowship of the body. Leprosy was awful. It was inconvenient. It was a thief. It robbed you of work. You were forced to be a beggar. You could not go to a funeral. You could not see your child be born. You were in exile. And it was costly. And what did lepers need? They needed everything. But we make the mistake of thinking that we're supposed to stop there with the passage. Oh, look at those lepers, right? Look at what bad condition they had. Rosario Butterfield, in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, here's what she writes. When Jesus walked the earth, leprosy was the worst of all plagues. Not only was it a filthy, deadly disease from which no one recovered, but its contagion spread arbitrarily and wildly, rendering beloved family members outcasts and wanderers in the beat of a heart with a pop of white pus, a beloved family member overnight became abhorrent. One day you could be enjoying sex and touch and belonging and recognition and value. And the next day you were as good as garbage. Lepers became moral and social outcasts. They were isolated, rejected, feared, and despised. They often banded together in pain, waiting to die, bereft of hope. When Jesus walked the earth, leprosy was a repulsive expression of original sin. It was not caused by a particular sin or behavior. Rather, it pointed to our sin nature, the walking time bomb inside each and every one of us. 
Did you catch that last phrase? You ain't have to be doing nothing to catch leprosy. But it's the walking time bomb inside of you that when it goes off, it alters your life in an instant and forever. Saints, we may not have leprosy of the skin, but leprosy was put in the Bible to remind them and us that we are not as in control as we think. We are not as strong as we think. We're not as righteous and as holy as we think. We are all on some level or another one misfortune away from having our world and lives turned upside down. We're one temptation away from hurting ourselves and those we love. We're one moment away from the evil of others causing us much pain and heartache. We're like them, not in the exact disease, but that we and the world we inhabit has been embedded and impacted by original sin and it's eating away at us and the world around us. If we're honest, we're needy, we're vulnerable, we're weak, and we know it. And we are in need of protection, of righteousness, of wholeness. Biblical gratitude, saints, it begins when we come to grips with that. You're not as holy as you think. You're not as righteous as you think. You're not as strong as you think. You're not as mature as you think. That at any moment, all of our lives could be radically changed by sin. And so biblical gratitude starts there. When you tarry in your weakness for a while, then we'll begin to look up for help. When you tarry and experience heartache, then you'll start to look up. The second thing we see in the passage is that gratitude begins to grow as our need encounters the radical generosity of God. So it's planted in neediness and it begins to grow as our neediness intersects and collides with the, the radical generosity of the Lord. And that's what you see in the passage, that Jesus is radically generous. And I want to show you a few ways where his generosity is shown to be beautiful and otherworldly. The first thing you note about Jesus's generosity is that these men don't find him. He finds them. Yeah, they come out to him. But did you notice what Luke says? Jesus was the one on the way from Jeru to Jerusalem. He was leaving Galilee to get down there. Look at verse 12. And has he entered the village? So who does first what? Do they come to him or does he get to their village and then they seeing him come to him? It's the it's the, the, the issue of Jesus coming there first. And if this is a leper colony, which I think it is, it's the image of Jesus seeing. Oh, I know what this is. And I'm not going to go around it. I'm going to walk right to it. And we've seen Jesus do this, haven't we? In John chapter 4, when Jews would, you remember the, the, the song by Troop? I begin to take the long way home. Y'all remember that one? Some of y'all do who? My age, right? Y'all know it. Who, you, who know the song? I know I'm not the only one. All right, I, I see you, Miss Shirley. I see you in the back, Akita. Well, guess what? The Jews used to take the long way home, baby. They wouldn't go through Samaria. If they were trying to get north to Galilee, they were not going straight through. They went the long way. They crossed the Jordan River, went north, and then crossed the Jordan River again when they made it to the top. They took the long way up. And what did Jesus say in John chapter 4? 
He says he had to go through Samaria. Why? Because the gospel must go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And where the Jews were partial and the Jews were ethnocentric, only thinking about themselves, Jesus says, I'm not just a Jewish Messiah. I'm the Messiah of all peoples from all nations and all tribes and all languages. And I will not let your little barriers keep me from going and bringing redemption to the Samaritans. And so what did Jesus do? He had to go the route that they would not go to bring redemption to a woman living in adultery. And so Jesus does this. He goes towards Samaritans. And here's the thing, saints. This ain't the first time he did it. If you remember Luke chapter 9, Jesus made preparations with his disciples to go into a village in Samaria. And the, the village rejected him and did not make provisions for him. And that is precisely where Jesus' disciples says, Master, do you want us to rain down fire on these half-breeds? And Jesus rebuked them and says, whoa, you better back up. So if that's the case, this is not the first time Jesus goes towards Samaria. John 4, he goes. Luke 9, he goes. And now we're here we are in Luke 17. And guess what? He's doing the same thing. In other words, Jesus is relentless. He's abounding in generosity. People who want to reject him, he says, I'm not going to leave you out. That's how radical his generosity is, is that it goes and it goes and it goes. But that's not it. Jesus sees them. Did you catch that in verse 14? When he saw them, he said to them, and I am so thankful to the book written by Paul Miller, Loved Walked Among Us. We read that ages ago, but he slows these gospel scenes down and makes us get inside of it. You see, if I'm walking and I know that this is a leper colony, I'm tempted to say, no, nah, I'm going to go around y'all, right? That's not Jesus. He goes, he enters. And then if I see 10 of y'all coming to me, looking like the apocalypse with like skin falling off, like I'm, I'm just being really honest, y'all, right? You know what I'm tempted to do? I'm tempted to like, no, nah, hey, y'all got to stay, y'all, you got to stay, you got to stay over there. I'm tempted to look not at you, but the distance that's shrinking between me and you. I'm tempted. Y'all ever been out with, with your kids or been around kids who will say anything? If kids see somebody that, that, that looks different and they're young. Daddy, what's wrong with his hair? <laughs> what's that? Why I can see their skin, Right. Parents know because kids will like they have no, can have no filter at a young age. That's kind of that, that might be me. I'm like, bro, what's, what's wrong with your elbow? Like anyway, that's not Jesus, y'all. He sees them. He can probably tell you what they're wearing. He can probably tell you, oh, he's married. He can probably tell you their bone structure. If you put them in a lineup, Jesus would be able to identify them. He sees them. He is not repulsed by their disfigurement. He is not afraid of it. He's not embarrassed by it. He sees them. But that's not it. He hears them. Now, on one level, he hears them like because he knows their words, but underneath it, he hears what they're asking for. Now, notice that it says, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Underline that word master. It's only used seven times in the Bible. And every time it's used, it's only used by Luke. And when it's used by Luke, it's always coming from the mouths of the disciples. And so you might remember when Peter and his crew fished all night 
and they caught nothing. And then the next day, Jesus says, hey, cast your net over there. He says, master, but we fished here all night. Just do what I say, Peter. And they threw the net out and their hall was so big they could not contain it, right? The next time he uses master is when Jesus is being touched by hundreds of people. And Jesus says, who touched me? And Peter says, master, everybody touched on you. What you mean? Who touched you? And Jesus knew the touch of one woman. He went on to heal her and he went on to raise a dead girl. That master. The other time when they were in the boat and the storm and the winds were about to overtake him, he says, master, save us. And then Jesus gets up and tells the wind to be still and the water to quit roaring. And the other time is when Peter is on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Jesus starts to glow. He starts to, 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 to radiate the holiness of God. And Jesus, I mean, Peter was like, oh, I'm here for it. Master, shall we pull up a chair and build tents and just hang out right here? Because you're talking to Elijah and you're talking to Moses. Can we just hang out right here? In other words, the way Luke writes his gospel, he says that word or uses that word when Jesus far exceeds what his disciples thought he was. And so when he assigns that same word to these lepers, it's as if the word of Jesus has made it to this village. And what they're saying is, Master, you who raise dead people, Master, you who can feel the touch of one woman, master, you who control the fish of the sea, master, you who control the winds and the waves of nature, master, you who have been friends with Moses and Elijah, Master, you who touched the leper in Luke 5 and healed them, can you not do that for us? Can you not do far more than we can ask or think right now? Prove yourself to be who you are. And guess what? He does it. He hears what they're asking. They're not just ascribing a title for him. They're asking him to flex. Show us who you are, God. Give us a glimpse of your glory, God. Show us your power right now, God. Push the effects of the curse back right now, God. Show us who is in control of all things, God. Make our skin come back together, God. Grow new skin cells right now, God. Give us joy back, God. They know Jesus hears what they're after. And then the text says he honors them. Did you see that? Jesus has preached radical neighbor love. Jesus knows of Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good from those to whom it's due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back tomorrow. Tomorrow I will give it to you when you have it with you today. And what Jesus got in his back pocket today when these men see him, he got healing today. He got reversing the curse today he got all power in his hands today and what he does is he shares it with them so much so that jesus doesn't even have to touch them in this passage did y'all catch up on that in other words he does not even have to show them the means of their healing he thinks it and they're healed he says go and show yourself to the priest which is Jesus's way of saying, I'm not circumventing the law of God. You go and do what Leviticus tells you to do. And as they make one step towards the priest, the steps of leprosy begin to work backwards. The wounds close up. The flesh is overlaid. The pussing ceases. The hair color reverts back. And they're healed because Jesus does it. Do you see 
that gratitude begins and grows when our needs meet the radical kindness of God. And this is why scripture says, everybody, let everything that has breath give praise to the Lord. This is why God expects us to be a thankful people, because God, by his very nature, is a benevolent God. We sing a song here. Thank you for food on the table. I know you're able. I just want to say thank you. You see, we need food and we need oxygen and we need our sinews and our minds and our eyes and our bodies and our organs to work correctly. And the Bible reminds us over and over and over again. That's not arbitrary. God is not a creator who wound the work up and who wound the world up and who is now away kind of letting it do its thing. The Bible says that God is holding all things together right now, that the Bible says that God is still kind. Jesus says that it rains and the sun shines on the just and the unjust alike. You know what that is? That's common grace. That's God. That's Jesus saying, you don't even have to love me and I'm still gracious to you. You don't even have to praise me. You don't even have to acknowledge my existence. And guess what? Because I am who I am, I am by my very nature kind. And so when God expects the whole world to give him praise, it's because on some degree, the whole world benefits from the kindnesses of God. And this is what R.C. Sproul writes about when he talks about common grace, common grace, not common because it's small, common because everybody seems to benefit from it. It is God's providential act of restraint. And notice these three legs, restraint, goodness and mercy towards sinful inhabitants of the world. Common grace enables the unregenerate to pursue virtue in their external and civic relations. So think about those three legs. Common grace is God's restraint. It's his goodness and his mercy. So think about this right here. You are not as evil as you could be. Why? God holding some of that evil back. This world ain't as bad. It's bad. Now, let's not let's not. Play with that. It's bad. It's evil. But it's not as evil as it could be. Why? Because of God's common grace. God is merciful. Our sins deserve instant obliteration. But God withholds. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He's kind. Right? This is where gratitude begins, saints. This is where it grows as we see our need over and over and over again. And as we see God's faithful provision. If you walk in today, if you got food today, if you're holding a child right now today, if you can hear the word of God today, It's all gift. It's all kindness to us. Which moves us to our last point. Is it enough to merely receive, right? To be on the receiving end of his kindness. Is, is that it, right? Is it it just to acknowledge my need and to say, thank you, God, for food. And then I'm on about my business. Is that the kind of kindness that God is after? It's not. Our last point is that biblical gratitude truly blossoms when we respond as this leper does and not the other nine. You catch that? That biblical gratitude truly blossoms when we respond like the one and not the other nine. Now, I've used that imagery of, of, of gratitude being planted in neediness. And it grows right when God is kind to us, he's meeting needs. But here's the thing about mature plants. You don't plant a plant just for it to grow. You plant a plant 
to have fruit to eat of. And the case that I want to make to you is that these other nine, they have need and God meets need. But the fruit that God is after is missing. Now, how do we know? You know, because look at what Jesus says. Look at what Luke says. That there were 10 healed, but only one came back to give praise. What happened to the other nine? Where are they at? Incorrect grammar, right? Maybe they were so excited, y'all, that they ran to the priests. Maybe they were so ready to hold their children and be with their families that they planned on returning later. Maybe they thought it was a coincidence. We don't know. And Luke didn't tell us why they didn't return. Jesus just asked the question, what are the rest of them at? I know I just healed 10. Are you the only one who came back? And saints, this is a window into our hearts, isn't it? In the hearts of the world. How often have we cried out, Lord, if you help me, if you help me. And he helps us. And we love what he gave us more than the God who gave it. How many times have we given him a quick thank you and we move on to live as we intended, treasuring created things more than the maker, failing to see him for all that he is, neglecting to see where his compassion should ultimately lead us. The gratitude that Jesus is after is of a different sort and it's something, it's not just something the world gets wrong. We get that wrong at times, don't we? And this is where Jesus says, well, let me let an unlikely teacher school you today. Why am I calling this leper unlikely? Because note what's said about him in 16. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, this man was a Samaritan. Notice what Jesus says. Were there not nine, was not one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. This leads us to believe that the other nine were probably Jewish lepers. Jewish lepers who had the covenants, who had the promises, who had the Bible, right? Who had all of the blessings of being God's covenant people. And here you get Jesus turning it all on its head and saying the people you hate are actually the people you need to learn from. It's a foreigner. And what does this foreigner teach us? That the gratitude that Jesus is after is more than a feeling. It begins there, but it doesn't stay there. It moves us to respond in worship. It moves us to treasure Jesus above all things. And it moves us to rest and receive God's general and ultimate and sometimes hard kindnesses to us in Jesus. Let me unpack that for you. First, the gratitude that God is after is the type that leads us to the feet of Jesus in worship. Did you notice this man's posture? As a leper, he would have had to scream, unclean, unclean, unclean. And now he's singing a new song. Now we're told that he was praising God with a loud voice. But he does more than that. He turns and goes back to Jesus and he fell on his face at Jesus's feet and gave Jesus thanks. And so which one is it? Is he praising God or is he praising Jesus? The answer is yes. He sees that Jesus it's not just a miracle worker. He is Messiah. He is God. He is king of all kings and Lord of all lords. He is ruler and creator and sustainer of all things. And this man falling at the feet of Jesus, he's communicating that you're worthy. You're God and I'm your servant. I believe you're the one who comes to take away the sins of the world and you have moved towards me. You came and pursued me when I was alienated and dirty. You came towards me. And saints, is this not our testimony? 
Jesus came to you and I in our darkness. You and I in our filth. And he was not put off by it. He moved to save us. But the gratitude that God is after is the type that treasures God above all things. You see, I think these men go home because home is important. They return to work because work is important. They return to wives because wives are important. They return to children because children's are, children are important. But in, Matthew, in Luke 18, Jesus is going to say these words. You who leave house and wife and brother and parents and children for the sake of the kingdom will receive many more times in this life eternal life. You catch what Jesus is about to say? And he's saying, guess what? This Samaritan is showing y'all what it means to treasure me above all things. They're not going home to wife first. They're not going home to kids first. They're not going home to husband first. They're not going home to work first. They're coming to me first. That the gratitude that Jesus is after and that he is worthy of, it's him. Who do we have in heaven but you? And who do we have on earth besides you? That my heart will fail me. My flesh will fail me one day. But you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That this man gets it. Those secondary blessings are good, but Jesus alone is great. Amen. And this man shows us what it's like to treasure Jesus. Just let me come and kiss your feet. Just let me come back to the one who is worthy and who is beautiful. The gratitude that God is after. It sees the goal of all of God's lesser kindnesses as pointers to his greatest kindness to us. Did y'all catch the irony in this passage? Notice what's said about him, about this man in verse 14. When Jesus saw them, they said to him, go and show yourself to the priest. And as they were walking, they were cleansed. So they're already cleansed of leprosy up in, in verse 14. But then notice what Jesus says in verse 19. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Wait a minute, dude. You were already healed. So what kind of being made well is he talking about right here at the end of the passage? It's salvation. This man had his skin healed. Amen. That's a lesser kindness. But there was a greatest, greater sickness plaguing him. It was the leprosy of the soul. And what Jesus did in that moment, notice what he says, your faith has made you well. When this man trusted in Christ, Jesus did something. He says, you're the one with leprosy today. And your skin is falling off. And you're in pain. And you've been ostracized. And you're living outside the city. But one day I'm going to go outside the camp. And I'm going to get stretched out on a cross. And I'm going to have my flesh. It's going to look like yours do right now. Except it's not going to be leprosy from the inside out. It's going to be justice from the outside upon me. I'm going to have my skin stripped off of my back. And I'm going to be crucified up there on a cross outside of the city. I'm going to be the refuse of the world. I'm going to be the one that people will not want to look at. Why? Because I'm going to go and die. Not just to heal you of your body. I'm going to go make atonement for your soul. Amen. That's where all of God's mercies go, saints. 
He gives you food to eventually eat the bread of life. He gives you shelter to shelter you from the coming judgment. He heals your skin because he's going to heal your soul. And this man discovers it. And I bet if you interviewed this man and you asked him, what are you thankful for? You know what he's going to say? I'm even thankful for the hard things God sent me through. You see, we, we get in this posture where we only praise God when he gives us good stuff. And this man is reminding us of the infinite wisdom of God. We can praise him for the bad stuff. We can praise him when our lives don't match up like we want them to. We can praise him for hardship and for suffering. We can praise him for loss. Because we believe in a big God who works all things out for our good and for his glory. And so if you ask this man, are you thankful for leprosy? He's going to say, you show right I'm thankful for it. Because him ostracizing me, him afflicting me, him sending me out of the camp. It's exactly what I needed to come into his arms and his feet. This is why the gratitude that God is after, it's of a whole different sort, y'all. A whole different sort. A whole different kind. May we be those types of people who come to the feet of Jesus and worship. Who see all the small things he gives us as bonuses. Who see that his kindness is terminate ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. And we learn to thank him in season and out of season. Because he, by his very nature, will never send us anything that is ultimately bad for us. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you for your radical kindness. Make us a people who can learn from the unlikeliest of places and circumstances as we're around table with family and friends and even if we may be alone, help us, Lord, to number your blessings to us and to know that the chief and highest blessing is your son. May we rest there in Jesus' name. Amen.